Hello and uh, welcome to this week's TES podcast. Uh, my name's Martin George. I'm joined by Will Stewart. Hi, Will. Uh, hi. Uh, Ed Doll. Hi, Ed. Hello, hello. And Helena Mass. Hi, Helen. Hello. Now, just to be clear, uh, this podcast has been recorded before England lose to Sweden on penalties. <laughs> um, so if we sound in any way optimistic, that's, um, that's why, basically. Um, shall we kick off with the World Cup, so to speak? Boom, boom. Yeah, very good. Um, we've had a couple of World Cup stories this week, haven't we? Yeah. It's the only story in town, isn't it? It's the only story in town, yeah. Brexit, but we'll cross well, over that. You should talk about it, Martin, because it was your the the uh, nasty side effects of the World <laughs> Cup in the, in the playground. Yeah, I wonder how many schools have experienced this. So it's, um, was it Home Farm School in Colchester, a little primary school? And um, they'd found that kids who'd been up late watching the World Cup had then been coming in the next day and rolling around on the floors if they'd been fouled <laughs> and, you know, Like Neymar. Like Neymar, exactly. Um, so the head teachers just banned football for a week, saying, you know, you're, you're learning dirty tactics from your, your heroes on the TV. <laughs> Stop <laughs> he, it. He tried to make it a learning experience. He, he, didn't he say they did something positive and, and um, put forward a plan to improve their discipline? I think so. They've yeah. got to, what they got to, they've got to study and they've got to learn about sportsmanship and come up with a like, code of conduct or something. So this is an exercise in self-regulation? Absolutely. So it's a learning experience for the for the kids there. <laughs> um, it's a great little story. If, if your schools had similar problems, let us know. Um. <laughs> the other the other football related story of the week um, was some debate about whether schools should postpone um, evening events, which happen quite a lot at this time of year, in case of England games. Now, obviously, this is being recorded on a Friday ahead of England's glory against Sweden <laughs> tomorrow, Martin. Yes. Um, and we will be in the semi final on Wednesday, of course, which. Uh, begs the question: If you're a head teacher and you've got a school concert, what do you do? Will it's a tricky one, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a cop out. That's a cop out. <laughs> I'll tell you, school age kids, school concert, or England versus Russia? You bring it, you bring it forward, and make it really short. <laughs> <laughs> or you take your mobile phone into the into the concert. Oh, you can't do that. That's <laughs> appalling. Yeah, no, it's really tricky. It's like weddings, isn't it? Yeah. Helen, as a teacher, would you want to see your parents evening postponed? Well, I mean, I think no teacher's ever excited to have a parents' evening. So if it if it got pushed back, that wouldn't always be the worst thing in the world. I think if it's a you know something a concert or something that you've personally put a lot of effort into, then you might feel a bit differently. But it depends how much you want to watch the World Cup yourself, of course. I guess so. <laughs> it's because it's knowing that half the audience will be on their mobile phones checking mm. out the updates on the, on the apps <laughs> and things. If, if they're there at all. If they're there. Yeah. And it was when they let out cheers when like, someone scores or groans <laughs> at random points in the concert. So, yeah. um, what else have we had this week? So we've had, um, must mention our campaign, um, hashtag let them teach. Um, we've got a petition on the parliamentary website now. Yeah, we've got a few hundred people signed up. Uh, which has kind of happened almost without a strike. Mm. So there's clearly quite a lot of goodwill out there. Bit of political support as well emerging. Yeah, Robert Halfen, um, Chair of the uh, Education Select Committee. He was a Tory Education Minister until about this time last year. He's back in the campaign. We've already had Labour Party Education Select Committee members. Yep. We've obviously got the unions. So we've, you know, we've got some famous people. This is a chance for the well, I was going to say grassroots, but I'm not sure I like the phrase. But but for but for every teacher really to to get behind it, you know, if if you're in a school where you're short of teachers, this might not affect you this precise moment, but it but it could well do. So so look at look for the hashtag. 
click on the petition link and, and sign up. To be clear, this is the campaign um, to encourage the government to put all teachers on what they call the shortage, shortage profession list. Shortage occupation shortage list occupation for, for visas. List. For visas, yeah. Which they, they've, they, I mean, NHS have now, you know, they've got a good deal with this now. And we're saying actually teachers, it, it's just as needed for, for that absolutely. profession. Because it's a huge recruitment crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, should we have a look at the magazine as well then? Why not? In all good uh, news agents. Um, so the excellent um, splash this week. <laughs> I thought it was a superb piece of work. It's um, about small rural schools. Who was it written by, Martin? Uh, it was by me. <laughs> yeah, it's me. Um, You've got a great little scoop in there, haven't you? Yeah, well, it was a funny one. It's um, so there's been always been questions about you've got small, tiny schools you know, across the English countryside. Can they survive? How can they survive? About 70% of the really small ones, they're run by the Church of England. And um, we found a, a, a little thing the Church of England has buried away, saying they're trying to lobby the government to make it um, easier to close some of these schools. How long, Christian? They're fairly unapologetic about it as well, aren't they? Yeah, and, and, and they put it in, a, in, a, in forthright educational terms. I mean, they're saying that at the moment the law says you've got to think about the impact of the local community in the village when you're considering a school. When, when closing it. When yeah, closing yeah. one, sorry, yeah. I mean, as well as the educational impact on kids and so on. And now the church is saying, actually, it's got to be about education. That's got to be foremost. You know, things like keeping the community together, that can't be the priority if the kids' education is suffering. And so what they're saying, are they saying it's harder to provide a very good education than a very small school? They're saying there are big challenges, they're saying that they want small schools to be working together in groups and there are economic as well as educational reasons why sometimes you've got to close some it's of these schools. It's a very, I mean it's a parallel argument to what you've seen going on with the health service isn't it? You have lots of uh, kind of district hospitals that are being merged and for, for very similar reasons, for medical reasons and communities want to keep them because they want something nearby. Obviously, you don't hope not to be in a in a hospital as long as you are in a school, but but similarly, and you can see the same arguments being made educationally. I mean, it, I guess it's different at primary school, but you can have more resources if you're in a bigger school. I mean, politically, though, it's a minefield. You can see, the, I can't imagine the Conservative Party thinking it's a good idea. I mean, these are thousands of schools, and. Yeah, what presumably are largely true blue constituencies. Yeah, they will be. Um, but it, w but it won't be down to the government. I mean, it's it's not a national decision. The, these things. I mean, because they do get they do get closed. It's it's taken at a local level. So who? Are, sorry, I should know this, but who are who are the Church of England lobbying then? Well, they're lobbying the government to change the rules. Yeah. About legally what you have to consider yeah. when, well, change, when, I mean. when closing yeah. a school. I mean, it's it's worth thinking that back in remember two years ago, the government wanted to make all schools academies. And it was a rebellion from the Tory backbenchers, yep. largely over the threat that posed to small rural schools. Who yeah, saw yeah, that plan yeah, yeah. demolished. So, yeah, I wonder if, if this idea might have a meet a similar fate. It's one of those perennials, though, isn't it? You know, people look people look at small small primaries and say, well, they're not affordable, or there are educational problems, or whatever. And they come round, they come round, they come round, and then. Ultimately, there's no political headway behind the idea that you should make it easier to shut them. So it'd be interesting to see if if this makes any difference. And it, but I mean, as some of the case studies in your piece point out, they do they do offer something fairly unique as well. And it, I mean, it, you yeah. know, whether whether it's better or worse, it's definitely different because you you encourage more friendships 
across the age range they're, they're more intimate so you get a, you get a very different type of education you're more, much more likely to get a one-to-one teaching so you might miss out on some ex- expertise but you, you, you'll get something else in return so it's yeah the other thing I thought was interesting one head I spoke to a chair of governors whose school was rated outstanding they've only got I think five kids there he was saying when Ofsted wow. come I know I've been coming for you when Ofsted come to our school they look at absolutely everything you know because <laughs> There's nothing else to look at. You know, you've got not like five individual kids scrutinising great depth. So, you know, it's a really, really harsh spotlight. And when those schools are rated oh. outstanding, you know, you think, well, Ofsted must be pretty confident. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. there's nowhere to hide. <laughs> exactly. Um, cover feature today, um, Helen. It's all about something that we hear quite a lot about these days: the, the word gap in vocabulary. Yes. Yeah. So uh, this this piece has been written by um, Barbara Blyman, who uh, is a, an, a secondary uh, English specialist. Um, and she uh, is, is basically taking issue with the fact that the vocabulary gap is as big of a problem as it's made out to be um, and that it's kind of the solution to better reading, writing for, for students. Um, the vocabulary gap obviously is, um, has been really well reported. Um, it's uh, students starting school from less advantaged homes with smaller vocabularies that tends to affect their abilities in, in English and in reading and writing. Um, but she's saying that the, the perhaps the concerns about it have been over-exaggerated and that in fact it is just one piece of the puzzle mm. uh, to teaching, teaching reading and writing. It's funny, I was having a look on the DfE website, so I know under Justine Greening, one of the four priorities or ambitions of her mm. department was reducing the word gap in early years. Damien Hines has come in, and I think in in May that that's no longer in the departmental plan. So I wonder what's uh, if you know, that's resonated somewhere else. Yeah, it might be that they've they've reached the same kind of conclusion that she has, and it's, it's the kind of thing that you know we we've heard with phonics, for example, where um, it, it can be really useful um, if it's taught in the right way, but ultimately it's not sort of a, a, a magic bullet that's going to fix fix everything. Um, and that we need to be thinking about it more holistically. And I think just in general, there's always a problem if you take one part of education research and, mm-hmm. and run with it and, and you know, expect it to, to deliver, deliver everything. It's one of those things, isn't it, as you say, it, it's a really easy to understand problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes sense politically. Mm-hmm. You know, people completely get behind it. Mm-hmm. But as with all issues, not just educational, but in terms of social welfare and deprivation, the problems and what goes hand in hand with it is so much more complicated mm. than just basic research, as you say, or headline figures. Exactly. I mean, you know, teaching and learning, they're not exact sciences, and I think that sometimes we uh, try to pretend that they are. Mm. <laughs> um, yes, a lot. But yes, yeah. but, you know, um, any, any teacher in the classroom will, will know that it doesn't work like that. I think I'd always seen the idea of there being a word gap that needs to be addressed as almost a a proxy for a, a bigger yeah. problem, mm. but it sounds like sometimes it's been taken very literally, yes. and people are just saying, "Learn this list of words, yeah. problem solved." <laughs> yeah, and she, she's saying one of the things she says is that a list of words, even if you are going to focus on teaching vocabulary, just giving a list of words isn't necessarily the best way to do that. Um, it's much better taught kind of in context through uh, broadening the type of text that students are reading, for example. So. Um, in subject-specific classes, they should be reading around their subjects, so non-fiction texts, newspapers, different types of, of writing, so that they learn not just the vocabulary, but also, um, you know, the different elements of that genre and how they um, how they put put that into their own writing. It's funny. I think she identified a problem here where she's seen a lot of 
um, kids using words like thus and furthermore mm. rather than whatever they should be, you know, simpler, easy ones. It's, it's almost the opposite to journalism. Yes, I was going to say, that sounds exactly like the people coming in. Yeah, because I, I was drilled, it was drilled out of me using these sort of long, impressive sounding words. Just keep it simple so that people can read it and understand it. Now everyone's going to yeah. talk about Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> 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 Who could be our Prime Minister by the time this thing's broadcast? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> you know. Well, yes. Well, we're in a bunker right now, <laughs> under TSA headquarters, so we'll probably be all right. Fingers crossed. Um, there's one more thing I wanted to just talk about. Okay. Um, Ed, social media, um, there's an essay in here which is asking what teachers should do in this age of rage. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll keep it short, but it, it's, a, it's a beautifully written piece by David James, who I think quite a lot of our listeners will know is a, a high-profile independent school deputy head, previously of Wellington and now Bryanston, and he's got a reasonable profile o on social media himself. Um, and he's talking about what he refers to, as you say, the age of rage, which is, uh, you know, it can be Trump, it can be Brexit, as you just touched upon. Um, and it can just be the general scrapping between chads and progs on Twitter. Mm. And he, he, it's a beautifully written piece, which in essence says that it's in, in part, at least, up to teachers to rise above it and not be... Um, absorbed into the morass of, of 21st century anger. Yeah. It's, uh, it's well worth a read. Definitely. The idea that Katika should just be sane, rational, normal human beings yeah. among this chaos out there in the, the wider world. Absolutely. That's actually quite a positive note to, to end <laughs> on for once. Yeah. Um, come on England. Come on England. <laughs> Thanks for listening.